Today is a special day for a lot of churches as we celebrate Reformation Sunday. It's a day we remember uh, the boldness, the courage that it took for Martin Luther to uh, stand up and, and nail those 95 theses to the door uh, of, the, of the church uh, in Germany. And uh, one of the reasons why I believe it's really important for us to remember and continually celebrate Reformation Sunday is because it's a day that is not, is not a day that marks the time we've got it all right. It is not the day that we finally arrived and that we remember that we've arrived. And so we, we have to remember that Reformation Sunday is, is a reminder that we are saved by grace and gr- grace is important because we continually need to be remade, reformed by God more and more into his image. And so as we think about Reformation Sunday, I, I think it's helpful to briefly say, well, what does it even mean to be reformed? We were reminded at classes, our classes meeting this week that um, sometimes uh, we forget We forget what it really means to be reformed. And so I think I just want to point out two things this morning for us. One is that um, to be reformed, it means that we are historically rooted in the movement of the Reformation that took place in Europe and in the surrounding countries. Um, And and that, that this is a movement that was marked by a few different key characteristics that were forgotten about. In the church, the 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 um, sovereignty of God, for example, that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. These were things that had gotten were were forgotten about in a lot of churches. That the Reformation reminds us to grab hold of and to live from daily. And so, as a Reformed church, we have gained through being rooted in this movement a specific accent. You know, we 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 emphasize certain parts of the Christian faith that other churches may not. That's one thing that it means to be reformed. The other, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is that we, being reformed means that we are personally being remade and reformed. And so we're stepping away from uh, the series that we're in right now on our core values to look more at what it means to be remade and in this prayer that Paul has for us this morning, for the, that he, he wrote for the, the Ephesian church, he, uh, he's, he's talking about the spirit reforming. And so this morning we're going to look at what is spiritual reformation, uh, why do we need spiritual reformation, and, and how do we receive this spiritual reformation. So first, what, what is it? Well, if we look more closely at Paul's prayer, uh, we can see that there's kind of three main things that are a part of this prayer. He, he says that um, he, he's praying for the Spirit to cause Christ to dwell in our hearts, that the Spirit will help us grasp the love of Christ, and that the Spirit w- makes possible things that we don't think are possible. That's what, it mean, that's what spiritual reformation in this prayer is, is, is talking about. That, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that we would grasp his love, and that, that we would see what, that, that anything is possible with God. And so in the Bible, um, before we get into spiritual reformation, we have to talk about what is the Spirit. 
um, for thousands of years, Christians have been talking about the three-in-one God, uh, tri, triune God, right? And that's what we believe. We believe that there are three um, distinct personalities that make up the unified God, the three personalities that make up one God. We believe God the Father, we believe God the Son, and we believe God the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to remember this because this morning we're we're mainly talking about the third person in the Trinity, which is God's Spirit, the personality of the Spirit. And like with any personality, there's unique characteristics of the Holy Spirit. When Christians talk about God's Spirit, what they mean is the invisible presence of God, the power of God that sustains all of life. And so what Paul is praying for in this passage is for us to really understand and embrace the reality of this spirit, this invisible power of God that sustains and renews us each day. He prays for us to embrace that in our lives. And so first he prays that the Holy Spirit would make Christ dwell in our hearts. Now, reformation, spiritual reformation, begins when Christ moves into our lives. Okay, the, the word dwell in this passage is a hotspot word in the New Testament. Uh, if, if you're headed off to university, for example, um, something happens that, that you're not really used to happening, not for everyone, but for, for some of us, that we, we relocate ourselves. Right, so I can remember, um, you know, first year and moving into my university dorm room and after, you know, trucking all of the, the bags and everything into the room and finally, you know, the dust settles and I'm sitting on the bed in my dorm room thinking to myself, I can't believe it, that this is the place where I'm going to live for the whole year. <laughs> I'd never been apart from my parents before, and and this was totally new, and it hit me in a new way that that dwelling, moving into a place, is a permanent thing. Like, it, it, it involves relocating ourselves. Maybe you can remember your family, you know, moving from one town or city to another, right? You you physically move the boxes filled with your family's things in from one spot permanently to dwell, to live in another. What the Bible tells us is that when we make Jesus Christ the Savior of our lives, through faith in him, that the Holy Spirit, God's invisible power, actually makes Christ live take up permanent residence in our heart. That this is the place where he resides. It's amazing. And I don't, I don't know if we often think about the, the, that, that Christ moves into our lives. Well, you know, there's not really a bed in, inside my, my heart is there? Like, how does, how does that work? How does Christ move into my heart? Well, we have to remember that when, when the Bible talks about the word heart, it's not referring to the muscle that pumps blood through our bodies. The, the biblical authors had a different idea of heart. 
okay, that when they were talking about heart, they were talking about the place that um, causes our thoughts, our, our, our words, our actions, everything, everything comes and flows out of our heart. That's why Jesus famously says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where, where you desire, the things that you desire, that is, is what it lives in your heart and, and, and causes you to do things to get those. It has a huge impact on how you, how you think, how you act. In Proverbs 4, it tells us that we're to guard and protect our hearts to be very careful what we let for, like what, what we let into our hearts because from it flows everything that we do our thoughts our words our deeds come out of our heart and so when we put these two things together we see the power of God's holy spirit that makes Christ dwell and move into the place that that actually causes our, our lives to change, what we, what, we, what we do, what we say, what we think. It's important to have the Holy Spirit making Christ dwell in us, right? That's where, tr- where spiritual reformation begins, is in our hearts. The Spirit also makes us to know and grasp the love of Christ. Now, I wonder if you've ever been to, um, uh, like, a laser tag place, or an uh, a, a indoor um, mini-golf uh, course, or an arcade. Oftentimes in these places, there's this game that you can play. I don't know if you can picture it. It's like a, a big glass cube that you put money into to win a prize. And the way that you win the prize is you have to, you have to move this claw around. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And you, you, you use the joystick to move the claw, and, and you pick kind of like the general location of the prize that you want. And then when you get the, the claw above that, you, you press the button, and it drops down and grabs it, right? This is the—when we think of grasping something, right, this is a good image for us to think about. The, the catch with these games, though, the catch that you don't really see, is that this claw is actually very weak. Have you ever played one of these games before and had to try over and over and over to get the prize that you wanted because every time you dropped the claw down, it would seem to slip off and then it would eat your money, right? That's how the arcade company makes money, is by taking advantage of you. But this is, I think, what Paul is getting at here, is that oftentimes in in our lives, we are like this weak claw. We don't quite grasp hold of what the love of Christ really means for us, how it changes us. We often are like the arcade game claw that that slips, right? And we have to—we constantly are trying to grab hold of this love, and we can't seem to find it. There's a pastor uh, who's named uh, Tish Harrison Warren. She wrote a book uh, that talks about the ordinary things in our lives and, and how, how God is active in them. And she likens grasping the love of Christ with putting on clothes in the morning. Okay, she says that our clothes represent our identities. Right, so if you put on, um, you know, some of us will put on a, uh, a paint 
and plaster-stained hoodie with, you know, different types of glue and adhesive that's just kind of smeared all over, strap on the work boots and head out the door, while others of us, you know, put on suits and ties as we head out the door, or throw on a backpack and grab, grab a coat. Um, these represent different identities that, that we wear. Some of us are more uh, hands-on, others are in the academic world. And she says that, that um, we have to think of the love of Christ as something that we have to put on daily. How do we remember this? Well, she says we are marked from our first waking moment by an identity that's given to us by grace, our baptized identity. We are baptized into the love of Christ. And it's an identity that's deeper and wider and higher and more real than any identity that we will don, that we will put on every day. We are God's beloved people. Can you grasp this? And often we don't. We search for other things to to plug our our, uh, identity umbilical cords to, like career or family or finance, and we forget to grasp the love of God. The Holy Spirit helps us to do this. We need to remember that. And lastly, the Spirit uh, takes the governor off what's possible for what God is making us into. Now, I use the word governor because um, there was one time where I was, uh, I hopped into a golf cart uh, at, at a golf course and did not realize that this one had been modified. And they had taken what's called the governor plate, um, which is the, basically caps how fast this golf cart can go. And uh, I, out of instinct, hopped in, popped the brake off, and floored it. And uh, lost, I, I lost a lot of the golf clubs that were in the, in the back because I was not expecting there to be that type of speed. And I think oftentimes we, we, we try to limit what God can do in our lives, what we think is possible. But the gift of the Holy Spirit takes, takes the governor off in our lives and, and, and allows God to remake us into something that we were just not expecting. Right, a few weeks ago, I shared a, a quote by uh, C.S. Lewis that talked about how, um, you know, we expect God to be making us into a nice little cottage or a nice little home, right? That, that um, you know, when he starts doing these um, simple renovations that we can, we can understand what he's doing and we can, we can grasp it and we, we get it. But then he starts to move walls around and he starts to really convict us of things that we were not expecting him to convict us of. And, and it gets uncomfortable. That's God taking the governor off. And what we, what we think is, is threatening us and causing us to, to lose um, important parts of our identities. God is just purifying and making us into not a nice cottage, but a, but a palace. Right? Through the Holy Spirit, God makes us more like himself, more like Jesus. And that, for us, as, as broken people, is going to be a difficult and painful and long process. Why do we need spiritual reformation? If, if we know a little bit about what spiritual reformation is, and it doesn't sound like the most comfortable thing in the world, why do we need it? 
Well, we have to back ourselves up and look at the target of Paul's prayer. Okay, why is Paul praying these things at this point in the letter to the Ephesians? Well, if we look back at the first part, uh, we see that Paul spends actually the first, basically three chapters of this letter, uh, telling of the gospel story and move and telling it in a way that that is moving from from disunity to unity. God is saying that through Jesus Christ, that um, he, that through Jesus, he is uniting things in heaven and on earth together. And that, so the focus of this prayer then is that in, in order to, to have this unity in heaven and earth, we need the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Uh, this is why Paul writes in verse 14 and 15, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul is, is gathering together all people together in this prayer. God is a God that desires unity with us. And we see this from the Garden of Eden. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them in perfect unity with him and with each other. He walked the garden with them. He, he lived with them. And then Adam and Eve sinned, right? And they broke their relationship. So then God called Abraham. He didn't give up on, on his people, his creation. He called Abraham and he made a promise to, to make Abraham the father of many nations, that Israel was called to be the family of God and, and to be a family that would, through them, would bless the nations. Right? So again, we see God's great desire to bring all people under his reign. But Israel kept getting in the way with their brokenness. Right? We see this in the Old Testament through the judges and the prophets that they constantly, Israel was forgetting about God, forgetting that they were representing him, that they were a light to the nations. And then comes Jesus. Jesus Christ, God's, God's only son who he sent into the world and does something that nobody was expecting him to do. He represented God perfectly as Israel was supposed to. But instead of being glorified for this, he, he, Jesus flips the script right, and takes upon himself the brokenness of Israel, the rebellion, the disunity that's caused by human sin. He takes that upon himself and, he, and, and through his death and resurrection makes a way for us to be unified once again through him. Ephesians 1 verse 10, right at the beginning of this letter, Paul writes, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so through Jesus Christ, all people are invited into this God's big, diverse, multi-ethnic community through Jesus and we read about this more in the gospel, that Jesus had a different understanding of family than what his peers did, and even his own family. There's this one part in, in the uh, gospels where um, Jesus is uh, saying some things that are pretty radical and not very broadly accepted in Jewish culture in terms of the kingdom of God. And uh, some people send word to his mother and his brothers and are kind of like, well, you know, Jesus is saying some things you might want to 
get him to, you know, zip his lip and, and get out of there before something bad happens. And so, so they come to Jesus, and, and he, Jesus is, is teaching, and he hears that your mother and your brothers are here, the crowd say to him. And Jesus replies to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he points to his disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And some people, you know, upon hearing this, we can think, oh, Jesus is disowning his family. How could we, he say in, in the Ten Commandments, you know, honor your father and mother and then say this. This doesn't make sense. But Jesus is not, Jesus is not disowning his family. Rather, he is opening up the eyes of the people around him to see that, that family is much bigger than what they were expecting. The vision for family unity that the Bible teaches is that God is drawing all nations, all people, together to live as one. So how are we doing on this? On Reformation Sunday, as we celebrate something that reminds us also of a lot of division. Am I right? How are we doing living together as the family of Jesus? I think if we're honest, it's, it's really hard to do. And we often find ourselves struggling to maintain unity, wrestling with things that cause tension. Why is this? Well, I read a tweet this week that might be helpful for us. This pastor was talking about family life, and they talked about um, how difficult marriage is and family is. Why is it so hard? Because, this pastor said, marriage is two broken people having little broken people. One of my mentors told me that uh, their pastor, his pastor came and visited him in the hospital um, when they had their first baby. And he's holding this, like, four-hour-old four baby in his, his hands, and the pastor says, uh, So, have you discovered original sin yet? But it's true, isn't it? I think this tweet and this idea of marriage and family, we can transplant into the church and say that Christian, Christian family is millions of broken people having, having millions of little broken people. <laughs> right? Th- this, this gets really messy when we try to live life together. Our selfishness and arrogance can get in the way because we want things our own way. Uh, we don't want um, disunity, but sometimes our brains cannot get past certain things. This isn't just a church problem either. A lot of people have experienced and are experiencing, you know, pain and sorrow and grief and tragedy that comes from, from broken families. And, and we, should, we know it shouldn't be this way, right? Our, our hearts break when we hear stories of, of broken Homes and broken families and things that cause disunity and tension among, among families and among people. We can't escape this fact where we try to work our butts off to, to live in unity with one another, but it seems like we can never quite get it right. 
we get in the way of this biblical vision for a united heaven and earth. And so I think it's um, important for us to recognize where Paul's prayer for the power of the Spirit comes from. Spiritual reformation is, is needed to, to live together as God's people. We, we are hopeless without it. And so how do we receive this power? The Spirit. Well, how does Paul teach us to receive it? Through prayer, right? We have to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Paul prays. He asks God. He, he kneels before the, the Father. Kneeling for us is a common posture of prayer. But for, for a, Jewish, a Jewish person, they would stand as they pray. They, they didn't often kneel. They only knelt out of an intense, uh, um, an intense desire for, um, to, to show that, that they're earnest and penitent and, and um, longing for what— it was, it was the over-and-atop response to prayer. We need to take what Paul is, is, is saying to us here and embrace it. We need to pray fervently. We need to pray, pray continually. We need to pray boldly for the unifying, reforming power of the Spirit. When Jesus talks about prayer, he says, we have not because we ask not. When things break down, when relationships fall apart, right, we often, we forget to pray. If you think about it, prayer is often absent in disunity. Because prayer changes us. So how can we know that God will give us the power of the Spirit? When we pray, we are broken people, you know, we think. How, how do we deserve this power? How do we, you know, amidst all of this brokenness and, and disunity, how, how, do, how can we um, think that we deserve God's, God himself to dwell in us? And, you know, Paul says in this prayer that we're to kneel before the Father. And I wonder if in the back of his mind he was thinking of Jesus, Jesus Christ, as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross, as he was looking at the heaviness that was before him and, and the weight that, that was on his, his heart and his mind, and he didn't kneel. He fell face down before God. The pain, all the pain, all the sorrow, all the despair that, that was welling up inside of him. It, he was so fervent in his prayer, so dedicated, so bold that he fell on his face. Father, if you can, let this pa cup pass from me, he said. What was this cup? The cup was, was a metaphor for him dying on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus Christ embraced physical abandonment. He, he was left alone by his followers, left alone by everyone who he went through life with. The crowds that followed him through his ministry were not there when he was hanging on the cross. He was alone. But he didn't just experience physical abandonment. He also experienced spiritual abandonment. He lost the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, when he was on the cross, he was cast out from the perfect community of the Trinity. When he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said this because, because at that moment, God was absent from him. 
Why did Christ do this for us on the cross? Why would, why would a member of the Trinity let himself be cast out from it? He did it for us. He was cast out from God's presence so we, so you could be reconciled to him. In our sin, we are outside of God's family until, until Christ wore our clothes and let himself be orphaned so that we could become heirs. The cross shows us that we were a stranger who was brought near and, and, and that through Christ's death and resurrection, we, we are adopted into the family of God. And this frees us, compels us, to seek the unity of God's family. Even though we constantly get it wrong, we can know that, God, that Christ is in heaven, that he's continually interceding for us, right? The, the, the grace that we receive is a daily, daily grace. Spiritual reformation shows us that Christ meets us in grace and is committed to us, committed to changing us. Look at the humility and the grace that Jesus has for us. How does that challenge us to live in unity with those in our families, members of our communities, members, people who, who don't think like us or act like us? When Christ pursued us and reconciled us when we weren't even thinking like him at all. Christ pursued unity at a great cost of himself, and so, so it compels us to seek unity today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, sending us Jesus who shows us um, the, the, how far you've gone to, to bring us back into relationship with you, to bring us back into unity Lord, we pray that um, you would give us your Holy Spirit, the power of your Holy Spirit that would make this uh, Christ dwell in our hearts, that, that we would grasp his love for us and, and, and um, trust you to change us. Lord, let this uh, lead us into um, the way that we talk with people after church, the way that we um, engage with our neighbors and, and, and uh, those people that we meet every day, Lord. Um, help us to remember how you've um, stooped so low, embraced so much um, to, bring, to bring us back to you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.